But what we're doing this evening is we're going to jump right into dealing with something out of Judges 4 and 5. And what I want to do is just answer a few of the questions. There are plenty of questions that come out of this text that we alluded to this morning. We preached through, gave you an idea of the text. But this evening, let's answer a couple questions that come up. In fact, some of these questions came up even today after the service that I found it very interesting. Doesn't the account of Deborah indicate or prove that women are allowed to lead in church ministries today? The argument is given that Deborah was a judge, and therefore God uses and chooses to have ladies become leaders in the normal basis of things in modern-day church ministries when we were in China and visiting there. This was the passage that was often used. See, God says that he even used Deborah as a judge, therefore ladies can be pastors in churches. And so let's just answer a few things, just a couple questions for that. What do we know about Deborah? We looked at it this morning, but again, if you're visiting with us this evening, we're in Judges 4, you get a little bit about this lady with her background. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. She dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. The children of Israel came up to her for judgment. I mentioned this morning, she was the Ann Landers, the, the woman giving counsel of that day. She is called a prophetess, a judge, a rare combination. I mentioned this morning, just in passing, only Samuel and Deborah are the only two in the book of Judges that are both judge and a prophet or prophetess. She is very rare as being a a prophetess. Some people may not want to admit this, but in the Old Testament and going into the very beginning of the New Testament, there were very few prophetesses. I had a pastor that used to always say this statement. The he would, he would give discussion and says, the exception prove the, proves the rule. And I used to wonder, what in the world does that mean? But this one kind of applies here. There was exceptional cases where ladies were used to be the preachers of that time. And, in the, and some people think it happened frequently throughout the entire Old Testament and in the very beginning of the New Testament as far as the book of Acts and church. That's it. That's, that, that's a very, very select few. It wasn't the norm. It isn't the, the, nor, the operation the way God normally did things. Now, this woman really is a woman of different character. She's one that's giving discernment. She uh, shows discernment, giving advice. She's one that has a keen uh, sense of involvement with the Lord, that the Lord speaks to her in verse 6. It talks about verse 5 and 6, the message, if you look at it, that God gives her, that she gives to Barak. As well, if you read in Judges chapter 5, well, let me just take you there for a second. Judges 5, it starts off, and this is the hymn book or the song that has happened after the victory. Look at verse 1. Who made or who wrote this song? According to chapter 5, verse 1. Deborah and Barak together. So they do a duet and, uh, on this song. Except for watch something that's kind of interesting as you jump down into the book, uh, or into the song. Look at verse 3. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord our God. Jump down a little bit further, verse 7. The inhabitants of the villages ceased, the, they ceased in Israel until, what? That I, who? Deborah arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. What's the sense? It says at the beginning it was a song by both of them, but as you read through it, who do you get the sense that's probably the one that wrote it? Or singing it? It's probably more her than him. Which gives us a little bit of uh, insight into her character. What does that show you about her? Nothing? Does she want to get all the attention? Does she want people to say, oh, you're a good songwriter on top of it? She almost deflects to say, this is something we did in collusion, and yet who did the bulk of it, it seems like? 
She did. Okay, so there's an aspect of humility in her life. She, um, it isn't obvious. She fills a void. There is a tremendous void. I alluded to it this morning. There's 40,000 warriors that don't have shields, don't have weapons. But none of them are willing to stand up and to start this whole battle against the enemy. But she is. And so the point is, it's not the norm through history to have a lady be the spiritual leader of some institution of God. It wasn't in the Old Testament, and it isn't in the New Testament. But this was one of those rare cases that God used Deborah to start something that all of a sudden somebody had to fill in the vacuum. The New Testament is very clear, though. When the New Testament talks about church ministries, you can't go to the Old Testament to Deborah and say this is the norm. It's not. Nor can you go back and say, well, if she was a prophetess in the Old Testament, therefore she should be a pastor today or lady should be pastors. You can't do that. You can't jump that way. The New Testament very clearly says this. If a man, that's the way it reads in most of our translations, but in the original it's very clear. If a male desires the office of a, of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Then it gives the qualifications. And one of the qualifications is the man has to be what? The husband. Okay, so what does that tell you? Okay, we're into gender questions and and homosexual marriages or all kinds of weird things unless we just keep it very simple. Who is supposed to be the pastors? Which gender? It's very clear. It's the males. In fact, it goes on a little bit further and it talks about the deacons and it gives the same qualifications that it's males. Okay, you and I, you may not like that, but this is just the way that God stated it. He says in 1 Timothy 2, let the woman learn quietly and also submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority to take over the leadership in the church. And so he's making it very clear. This is his pattern for this day and age when we talk to church age. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in this context, he's talking about those who have the gifts of tongues, those who have the gifts of prophesying. And he says, let the woman keep silent in the church is not permitted unto them to speak in that sense of speaking, not like the ladies just singing. We're not talking that. But we're talking rather those who are speaking and giving out the word of God, doing the teaching or giving out the tidbits of revelation, such as through tongues. They are commanded to be under obedience, submission, as the law also says, where it's very clear, okay, the men are to provide that leadership, even the preaching, teaching aspect of the local church. So going back to Deborah and making her as the example or the argument is to discount the facts that it was very rare, that she did fill a void, we'll grant that, but in the New Testament it is very clearly stated that for us during this age, there are not lady pastors supposed to be running things. Here's the other question. This one I found amazing. How many different commentaries talk about jail? And they really, they, they really rip on the woman. In fact, I, this Somebody came up afterwards and they said, you mentioned at the end of your message, you said that she was given honor amongst all the ladies of Israel. How could somebody who takes a tent peg and puts it through a man's head be considered honorable? And besides, she lied and tricked the guy to come into the tent. She fed him, she covered him up, and then she planned all along to kill him. She's a liar. She's a trickster. She's a deceiver. It was really interesting that that's exactly what some commentary said, and somebody brought it up this morning. And so what, you know, when we look at that, we say, okay, is that exactly what happened? How is this woman... How is this woman commended by God when she used trickery to lure Sisera into the tent? How is it she's commended when she pegs him? Literally, she pegs him with a peg. How is somebody doing such a dastardly deed commended? There are several thoughts you've got to keep in mind. Okay, let's, let's be real 
real careful with the text. Let's read what happened. Okay, again, it's kind of gory, but let's do it. Okay, just because I like gore, no. Just because it's there. Verse 21. It says, jail, Hebrew. Well, let's back up. Get the setting. That Sisera, verse 17, is fleeing. He's the general of the enemy army. He's fleeing to get back to his home castle area. Uh, and as he's going, he comes across the tent of Heber, Jael's husband. He, Heber and, and Sisera's uh, troops, they have an alliance. Heber's uh, been their friend, according as you read the verses. Jael, the wife, went out to meet Sisera, the general on the run, said to him, turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he turned in uh, under her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle, with blankets, whatever. And he said, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk. Some conclude that this is more like yogurt. Okay, that she feeds him something that has more nourishment than just some milk. And gave him drink and covered him. And again she said, uh, he said to her, Stand in the door of the tent. It shall be when any man does come by and inquires and says, Is there any person here, any man here hiding out? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent. Now so... You know, she's done this. But she goes, gets a nail of the tent, took it. I'm sorry, it, it isn't funny, but it's weird. She took a hammer in her hand, went softly unto him, because he was sound asleep, smote the nail into his temple and fastened it to the ground, because he was fast asleep and weary. He dies. That's really, okay, it's a, it's a blunt story. And, P, and so people will jump to it and say, and like I said, commentaries do this, somebody else did this, is, you know, she's a very deceptive woman. It just looks terrible. How come she is said to be, you know, honored? In fact, I wanted to drive you to that. Go to chapter 5 in the song and notice what it says in verse 24. Blessed above woman shall jail the wife of Heber the Canaanite be. It says it once, and then what does it say? A second time. Blessed shall she be above woman in the tent, or the nomadic group. How does God commend her after what she's done? A couple things to keep in mind. Number one, if you're going to say that she tricked him, you don't have all the facts. Okay? Fact is, we don't know if she had what she had planned all along. You don't know. I don't know. Did she, when she first encountered him in the story, is she, can, is she planning all along to kill him? Or does she invite him into the tent, offer him, and as she gets more information, she just goes on the spot and then deals with it and comes up with a plan as she learns more details from Sisera what is going on, that they're beaten in battle. We don't know where she started at the beginning of this story in the sense of she was planning this all along. You don't know that. The text doesn't tell you that. The text just says she greeted him, she gave him food, and as he was sleeping, she went in and killed him. When did she come up with that plan? We don't know. Something else. You are living in a time period. We are living in a time period totally different than back then. They are in a vicious warfare period. The enemy to the Hebrews is the are the Canaanites. The leader of the enemies is Sisera. He is the Hitler to these people at this time. He is the one who is the leader of the troops that is causing the persecution and all that is going on against the Hebrews. And so that's a totally different time period that you and I 
I aren't living in. Chapter 4, God has already said about Sisera earlier when he has said, here's my message, God has already said about Sisera, I will deliver him into your hands. God has already pronounced a death warrant against Sisera when Barak went to battle against him. We also know this as a fact as we go through it. God says in this, in this I'm sorry, the, the, the song concludes showing us an attitude about the people of Israel at this time. Go to chapter 5, verse 31. When they conclude this song, here's their bottom line. So let all your enemies, what? Perish. That is a mindset. That is where these people are coming from. They are rejoicing that people died. They're excited about it because they are the enemies. They are the people that have been persecuting them for an extended period of time. So you say, well, why did she pick up the tent peg? Because she understood it. You do realize that back in these times, it was the lady's job to use the tent pegs to put them in to get the tent set up. This was something she was familiar with. It was the weapon at hand that she was using to swinging that mall and dealing with the tent peg because she did it. If others had done their job in the first place, okay, back in chapter 1, back in chapter 2, if the Jews that went beforehand had done their job in dealing with the Canaanites, she wouldn't be in this spot. They were supposed to have already gotten rid of the Canaanites. God had already pronounced a curse on the Canaanites already well over 150 years ago when Joshua was leading the people in the land. He told them to get rid of them. That command has not changed. They were to be annihilated. Those people from the previous generations did not do it. They did not fulfill what God had already said. Jail does what God had commanded already 150 years ago. As well, those nearby her, there's a town that's mentioned back in chapter 5 in the song. Look at verse 23. In the middle of this situation, this song, it says, Cursed ye, curse ye Meraz. This is a town that's nearby to where they have, uh, they have pitched their tent. Now, it says that those people in Meraz, they are being cursed because the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to help with the Lord, to help the Lord against these Canaanites. Okay, that's the comment, if you read through the entire verse. That he says, Cursed be the citizens of Meraz, which was just down the road from where Jael's tent is. Cursed be these people because they didn't come out and battle and fight with the Hebrews against Sisera and his troops. Okay, it's nearby. As well, I want you to look at verse 23 again. Who pronounced the curse against those who would not oppose Sisera and his troops? What does it say? The angel of the Lord, who is that? Okay, it's probably Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It is the, probably a representative. It is a specific command from God that he, these were supposed to be destroyed. And if you didn't participate, and you didn't help in the destruction of Sisera, what could happen to your family? What does he say? Cursings upon you. Cursings upon you and bitterly the inhabitants. It's a bitter curse against anybody who does not rally and support getting rid of Sisera. And it's very clearly coming from God's mouth. Sisera is supposed to die. Sisera is supposed to be taken care of. And Jael is doing what God has commanded. Now, here's a question for you. If she had used another means of killing him, would that make it so much better? Okay, well, well, if she had poisoned him, does that make the story then now more palatable? Okay, she killed him. Now, she used what means she, was, she had and what she understood and what she knew she could, she could handle. 
Okay? She did this this time. She knew she could hit the nail on the head and not wake him up. Okay? She understood doing that. And so she does it, and it sounds gross and horrible, but can I take you back to another Old Testament period of time? Okay? Pastor Tony was teaching the kids about it. He was giving me an illustration of, about how he was talking to the kids, and he commented to them, hey, do you know what David did with, with Goliath's head after he killed him? Or with Goliath after he killed him? And the kids were like, no, what did he do? Okay, you know, in that story, what did, the, what did David do with Goliath's head? He cut it off. Why? In, in modern day, is, do we find it disgusting if they behead somebody? We do. We do. I mean, it is disgusting. Back in those days, back in that time period, was it as disgusting as it is to our sensibilities today? What do you do with a head that's chopped off? What did David do with it? It was a trophy. Okay? It's a different time period. It's a different time frame. And so what you have in this story is you and I are judging people outside of their culture, outside of their setting, and commentaries are made about this, about how jail, she was a wicked woman. Really? The passage says she is blessed above the woman. She is commended by God. That's, that's, there's the fact in that passage. You know, so... What I want us to do is just stop and think. It is easy for us. I'll give you my personal, personal experience. Okay? Uh, and and um, keep this in mind. What she did was protect Israel, God's program. What she did was, was magnified because she is defending the people of God. She's getting rid of their ulti- ultimate enemy. You know, years ago, I used to think this way. When I used to, before I went to China, and it was like, oh, in those house churches, they have services. And sometimes we would hear the stories about how sometimes they have to be real secretive about their house church and how they do it. And if all of a sudden somebody comes in and starts checking out, they stop doing church and they pretend they're doing something else. And I used to think, you know, if they were really bold for Christ, they wouldn't do that. If they were bold for Christ, they would just continue to sing and have their Bibles out. That's easy for me sitting in America to think that. So when I go there and see what happens and see how those people live under a government that is persecuting and understand that what they're doing is protecting themselves by shifting at times. From all of a sudden in the middle of the church service, if all of a sudden there's the knock at the door, they change gears. And it's not because they're afraid of their faith. In fact, they're there already proving the, bra- the bravery of their faith. But here I am sitting in Lebanon, Pennsylvania and making judgments about other people. Who am I to judge the Jews and hiding them during the time of Hitler? It's easy for us to say, well, they should have been more honest. If somebody came knocking, the Gestapo came to the door and said, are you hiding anybody in your home? They should have said yes. They should have said that. It's easy for us in 2017 to say what people should have done back in the 40s when it was a life and death situation, and we're not there. It's easy for us to make statements about, oh, those people that used to be behind the Iron Curtain smuggling the Bibles, and they should have been more forthright. They should have been more open to say are you, what you're declaring, what you're bringing in. They shouldn't just put literature. They should have spelled out exactly what literature it was. It's easy for you and I to make those statements, right? Because we don't do that. You know, in fact, 
the only way we got into China in three years is we on our visa said that we were representing Lebanon Education Foundation. You know, who's Lebanon Education Foundation? Lebanon Education Foundation is a paper company created in Harrisburg. You know who owns Lebanon Education Foundation? Faith Baptist Church. And it was done for one reason. It was done so that we could secure visas to get in there. And we're not the only ones that have used this. So have a number of the other folk who have gone. They have gone under the auspices of putting down Lebanon Education Foundation because they were tied to our church in some way, shape, or form. And they have gone over there. And they got the visa because Education Foundation opened the door. In fact, can I remind you about a story in the Bible? Samuel is told... He is told, go and anoint a new king. Who's the king at the time? Saul. And Samuel says, I'm supposed to go to Jesse's house, and I'm supposed to anoint one of his sons. What if Saul hears that I'm going there? Do you remember what God tells him to do? Anybody remember? He says, tell him you're going to make sacrifice. That's what he tells him. God tells Samuel to say. He says, just tell me. And by the way, was he going to make sacrifice? He was. So in God's mind, don't tell Saul everything. Okay? Because if you tell him everything, you're going to, in, you're going to invite more danger. But tell him you're going to make sacrifice, and then you go, and when you're there, you do the, you do the ministry to David, but also make sacrifice. And so, Jael, you, uh, there's so many commentaries. I was just amazed by how many rip on this woman. And the immediate response is, well, she's a deceitful, she's a conniver, she's a killer, she's just, I, I wouldn't want to rest in her hotel. Okay, I wouldn't want to take, you know, if there's a sign that says, Jail's place, I'm not stopping, okay? That may be good for us to think. It's like, you know, we, we don't want to go to Bates Motel. We don't want to go to Jail's house, okay? But it's easy to condemn when you're not in the spot. And so look at the context, look at the history, look at the story, and understand where they're coming from. Now, keep on going as you just kind of take some different questions. This part of the, st- of the, of the chapter, uh, of the account, to me is often overlooked. In fact, I've never, I went through all my files. I have never heard a message on Judges chapter 5, ever. It's always in Judges 4, Deborah Barak and that, you know, that wicked jail. Okay, those are the messages that I have in my files. However, chapter 5 is an integral part of the story. Chapter 5 is that song we mentioned before, a song written by Deborah and Barak, I mentioned before, probably more by, De- by Deborah. It's for all the Hebrews. If you look it up, it says, come and join us, come and sing with us, we're going to be celebrating. And it's giving a clear demonstration that God desires praise. After God does something wonderful and marvelous, give him praise. And the appropriate response for something marvelous is to give him praise. In fact, it ends up with that statement, let them that love him be as the sun. Let's broadcast our, our delight in what God has done. And so we learned that. Now, when we looked at it, we saw this this morning. The song reveals some things for us. It reveals what the conditions were like. We already talked about this this morning. Don't need to rehearse it again. They were terrible. They couldn't do commerce. They were fearful. They were overrun. We talked about it in the AM. As well, it shows us what God did for them in the battle. It says in chapter 4, verse 15, 16, God routed Sisera. Chapter 5 tells us he did it by sending, by 
a storm, the rivers, something. The heavens fought against him, the waters overflowed, and the 900 chariots were, were ineffective. And so we learn that God intervened naturally. It also gives us a little bit of insight what was going on at Sisera's home. If you read the last few verses, <coughs> Deborah is singing. She says, oh, back at Sisera's home, by the way, Sisera is laying in jail's tent with a peg through his head. She goes on in the last few verses and says, this is what's happening at Sisera's home. The mother of Sisera, verse 28, is looking out the window and she cries through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long coming? Why tarry the wheels in his chariot? Her wise ladies answered, and she returned the answer to herself. Oh, they have not sped back. Have they not taken the time to divide the spoil to every man a damsel or two? To Sisera, a prey of diverse colors, a prey of, or, you know, the, the, the treasure that he supposedly, they think that he got. The prey of diverse colors of needlework and diverse colors of needlework on both sides. Then next to spoil them that take the spoil. It basically, the reason, mom, the reason that Sisera isn't here is his troops have conquered and they're, they're having a grand old time partying it up and dividing the spoils. And the irony of it is he's laying dead with a peg in his head. Okay. And so we get a little bit of that detail. And it tells us, here's the detail that we often miss, and I wanted just to spend the next few minutes on. Then chapter 5, it gives us a lot of detail about why they won the victory. Okay, let's go back to, in our minds. Let's go back to the beginning of Judges. Chapter 1 and 2. One of the reasons that they failed is they didn't have what? This is a test from a message two weeks ago. Encourage me. Okay, guess. <laughs> it begins with F and it ends with eighth. Okay, they didn't have faith. That was really good, thanks. Okay, so they didn't have faith. In this chapter, as they sing the song, they reveal the faith of the people of Israel that we wouldn't catch otherwise. We're going to hear about what happened. Now, I want you to catch and get the story right. Go back to chapter 3 and remember the setting of the book of Judges. The reason God left the Canaanites, one of the two reasons he left them in the land, we read this in chapter 3, verse 4. They were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers. God is going to use the presence of the Canaanites to test the Israelites. Israelites. Are they willing to follow him? Are they willing to do what he has told them to do when he tells them what to do? And so they are a trial. They are a, a discipline, but they are also a test. They are a test to see if the Israelites will respond. That's the sense. That's where we go into chapters 4 and 5, understanding that, that um, Jabin and Sisera are there to test the hearts of all the Israelites, to see if they are willing to take a stand for the Lord, to see where their faith is, to see if they'll have obedience. It's almost like um, Richmond has that book, and we've referred to this a while back, The View from the Zoo. He's there one day as he's working in the San Diego Zoo, and he sees that there's a birth of a, of a newborn, a giraffe. And the baby giraffe is there, and all the attendants, they're all excited. This giraffe's born in captivity. And he said he was shocked absolutely shocked that as the baby giraffe got up and started moving around, the mother swung her legs and knocked the giraffe down. The baby giraffe gets back up, walks a little bit. The mother swings her legs and knocks the, giraffe, the baby giraffe down. The little giraffe gets up, wobbly. The mother knocks it down again. Richmond said, I, I, he nudged somebody there and said, we got to go in and save that, that baby giraffe. And they said, oh, no. No, no, no. This is what always happens. 
You mean the mother attacks the baby? No, the mother's training the baby. The mother is knocking the baby down so the baby remembers how to get up and how important it is to get back up. Does God ever knock us down so we get back up? And then you get back up and what's he do? It feels like, what's he do? It feels like he knocks you down again. Okay? And then about the time you get back up and you're standing there, all of a sudden you think like, God just knocked me down again. Okay, and those trials are for our benefit. God said, I'm leaving the Canaanites, and they're going to test you. They're going to show me if you know how to keep on going. Now we read chapter 5, what some of the tribes did. Some of the tribes and how they responded. And remember, this is poetic ideas. This is, this is sing-songy. This is given in, in Hebrew prose. And as we look at it, it's tough sometimes to just have a glance right out. But we'll, we'll see if we can divide it up a little bit. Jump down into the story. And into the story as we talk about what's happening, here's what we reveal about what's revealed about the heart of the Hebrews and why God gave them the victory. Number one, they volunteered without hesitation. Many of them did. They volunteered without hesitation. Chapter 4, verse 10. Barak, we want you to go out. God, that, this is what Deborah says. God wants you to go out and you need to get people from Naphtali, verse 6. From that, the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. Look down to verse 10. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali. And what happens? He went up with how many people volunteered from these two tribes? 10,000, oh yeah, I'm giving you the answer, that makes it easy, okay. 10,000 of them following. Then we read in chapter 5 that there's 40,000 who don't have spears and swords. So there's others who have joined them. Where did the other 30,000 come from? Who else jumped in? Go to chapter 5. Watch the song telling us about Ephraim. It says, down in chapter 5, or actually verse 14, Out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After that, Benjamin among thy people. Out of Maker came down the governors. Out of Zebulun, they that handled the pen of the writer. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Even Issachar was also with Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley for the divisions of Reuben. There were great thoughts of Heart. Oh, we've got to stop there. Okay, here's what we get. Just little tidbits about these people. Issachar, where it says that they were on foot. I'm reading King James. Some of you have different translations. The Hebrew has this idea where it says in verse 15, even Issachar, where he was sent on foot into the valley, that's King James rendering. The better rendering is they rushed, they sprang forth. It's the word that the idea that they, that they really moved. It's like they leaped off this pulpit area and they got, got busy. So you have some of these people coming down with their commanders, with their leaders out of Ephraim. You have Issachar, some of the people coming out of that tribe. And they're doing it with zeal, with, with anxiousness. You have Zebulun described here, that they are marching with their leaders. Go down a little bit further, down to verse 18. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death. <coughs> That is, they were willing to put themselves at risk in order to help out. Get in this battle. They didn't hesitate. They come down into the war. They get involved. And when it talks about them being in the high places, several of the Hebrew scholars says is that places that are elevated physically or they think that in this prose it means those places were at the, at the peak of where the battle took place. We're all, you know, like at the front, at that very line in Gettysburg, where it's right there. That's where the real battle took place. <coughs> all through the fields. But there's that one spot. 
And some think that what they did is they volunteered to fight at those very, very most dangerous positions. <coughs> As well, we've read about tribes of Benjamin, Ephraim, and parts of Manasseh, uh, Manasseh, that is the maker, that they weren't even under this oppression. Their tribes, if you look and study the story from chapter 4, they weren't even bothered by Jabin, and yet they sent troops. They get involved. They are, inv- they are right there willing to do it. Why? Because they had a tie to the people. They realized that they were called by God back when Joshua <coughs> had been ministering and say, if somebody needs you, you've got to come, you've got to help them. If one of the other 12 tribes is in battle, you've got to come and help them. And they did. They came without hesitation. Now, I stopped reading because he mentions or she mentions, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not going to make this. Yeah, if I keep coughing, you're going to start doing it too. So I need to stop. So there's several of the tribes, they are criticized for not coming. Did you see Reuben, where I stopped reading? It says, <clears throat> it says in the text, it says, For the divisions of Reuben, there were... I'm again reading King James. Your rendering might be a little bit different. The divisions of Reuben, there, Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. What's that mean? One author put it this way. They're like the people who make New Year's resolutions. They're the individuals who they really intended to do it. They made a resolution. Yeah, we'll show up. We'll be there. And, you know, we'll think about it. We're going to pray about it. But they never show. They're the individuals who, who yeah, yeah, we're for you. But they never come and give part and parcel to the battle. He goes on, he just talks about another tribe. He talks about uh, Gilead. One author described him as out of sight, out of mind people. He, look at verse 17. Gilead abode beyond Jordan. That doesn't say a whole lot, but boy, it speaks volumes. Do you remember Gilead as part of the tribe of Gad? They stayed on the other side of Jordan, if you recall. And when they were on the other side of Jordan, they said, we'll take territory over here on that one side of Jordan, and we're going to be available. We'll live here. And Moses warned them in Numbers, I think it's 23, 32. Numbers 32, he warned them. He said, you're going to stay on that side of the river, and some of you will think, okay, when battles take place... In the main area where the Jews are, you're going to want to stay over here on this side of the river. Don't do that. He warned them. He told them, don't you stay because out of sight, out of mind. Joshua was so concerned about that, that Joshua in chapter 22 of the book of Joshua said, we're going to put stones up. And you're going to remember that this is your commitment. You're staying on that side of the river, but this monument will speak to you that when you get a note, when you get a text that says, we need you to come and fight with us, you come and fight. You remember you've made this commitment. This is, the, this is the pillar. This is the covenant stone that says you made a commitment to come. But out of sight, out of mind. When the opportunity came, they didn't come. They stayed at home. There's another comment that's made. The tribe of Dan. This would be the people, you know, we tried it and it didn't work. Look where it says. Why did Dan remain in their ships? Again, it's a very subtle comment, but remember, the tribe of Dan had been told in chapter 1, go in and, and conquer your territory. They never conquered their territory. They didn't get it at all. They end up defecting from their territory. They move closer to the shores where they, they rally with and they associate with the Phoenicians and then eventually the Philistines, and they stopped fighting God all to, for God altogether. There they are. They get a note. They get a text. They get a call. But they're far away, they're 
Not soldiers. They tried it. It doesn't work. It's not for us. There's one other tribe mentioned. It's the tribe of Asher, if you look at it. Asher, it's described in verse 17 this way. It says, Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches or in his activities, in his, in his workday world. In other words, they stayed at their jobs. And that's a good thing, by the way. Staying at and being faithful to your job is a good thing. But is there time we put aside our job and do something more important? For the Jews, the answer was yes. When your fellow countrymen are threatened, when they are trying to do what God tells them to do, get here, defeat this enemy, get freedom, you were supposed to come, but they were too busy... They had a lot of stuff going. They had a lot of activity going. You know, there's that whole idea here that these tribes gave excuses and not involvement. You know what's interesting out of that? Is if you read the rest of the book of Judges, those few tribes that didn't come at this time, they suffer the worst. They are basically, you know, the next we read about them, they're steeped in more paganism than any of the tribes that come to battle. They all have troubles, but those tribes especially, they basically fall off the face of the earth, if you would, uh, as far as spiritual activity, as far, as far as what they're doing for the work of the Lord. Man, there is so much that we could be talking about. We could be making application and illustration of how God's people need to be willing to serve. We need to fight the good fight and not leave it up to others when it comes to getting out the Word of God. It is so easy to say, yeah, 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 I have New Year's resolutions. I want to witness. So those of you who are, you know, I'm going to be praying for you you get involved in reach. And you don't. I, I really hope that we do a great reenactment, but you don't come to fight next to getting out the gospel. I really hope that we make an impact through the bounty boxes, but somebody else has to provide the bounty. Somebody else has to come up with delivering it. It's always somebody else. It doesn't change as time goes by. The same, the same deficiency in those Hebrews afflicts and affects us in 2017. We can have good intentions. We want others to do the work. But you and I need to know better. We need to get involved in the ministries of the Lord for the sake of giving out God's word, for the sake of making a difference in lives. Not having just good intentions, but actually good involvement. It's important. God blesses the people who get involved without hesitation. That's including you. There's something else about the people. God gives them a victory, not only because they volunteer without hesitation, they trust in God without explanation. In this story, what happens is he tells them, he calls them. Go, go back to the, to the beginning of the battle in chapter 4. In the beginning of the battle, he says to them, okay, Deborah speaks and says, God has a message from you, Barak. You're going to go out. Now, look at verse 6. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and draw towards Mount Tabor? Get 10,000 men, go to Mount Tabor. And I will draw unto thee by the river Kishon, Sisera, with all of his chariots and all of his multitude. And I'll deliver them into your hand. That's it. That's all the detail God gives. That's the message. Most of us, me, me, okay, so therefore if I think this way, then most everybody does, okay, in my foolish pride. Most of us, we want more details before we would jump in this battle. I want to know exactly what, how long is this going to take. I want to know um, what do I get for a weapon. They have chariots. 
And I don't see any spears and I don't see any shields. And God said he's going to take care of it. But could he give me a little bit more information on how he's going to take care of it? Tell me how this is, you know, tell me what's going, you know, what do we do? Where do we stand? And they get there, and then the, the next tidbit of information that we have is, it says, verse 13, it, uh, we get this idea that Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, all 900 of those chariots with the snorting horses and everything. They're gathered. We're up on this bank. We're sitting because we read the next, the for, verse, verse 14, that they're up on Mount Tabor. She says you have to go down. So they're up here where the chariots can't get us. I can fight the chariots from up here because the horses can't come up this way. And we don't get any more information until all of a sudden Deborah says, go down, go down and beat them. These people have faith where they're saying, okay, we're going to do what God says without all the information that we desire. And you and me living in modern-day America, we want information because we're used to having information. Because how quick can we get information? Huh? Right? We can get instant information, and we are so geared up that we want to know everything. And so God doesn't tell them how he's going to do it, but these guys go. These 10,000, 30,000, they get involved, they volunteer, they get there, and they move without full explanation. By the way, are there other times in the Word of God that people move without full information? but they move by faith. Can you think of a few? Abraham's told to move, and he's not told where, but he moves. Moses is told, go down, and I'm going to convince Pharaoh to let your people go. He doesn't have a clue what that all involves, but he goes. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul is told, you're going to be sharing my word before kings and nobles in Acts 9. He doesn't know what that involves. But all of a sudden, God, and God says this multiple times, go into all the world and teach all nations. But you don't know all the details. And we're supposed to act. Something else that I think that stands out about these people, why God gave them victory, is they volunteer without hesitation. They trust in God without full explanation. They give God credit without reservation. That's chapter 5. That's the entirety of chapter 5. The whole song where it's given to praise and the singing and giving God the glory, which I don't need to explain any further. How does this apply today? How does this affect us, you and me today? I think we should be willing to contribute. Like these individuals, we should rally to whatever cause that God is laying upon the heart of ministry, what he has told us to do. We should rally. We should contribute. We should get involved. We should be more than just spectators watching others do it. We should be active participants. You ever hear of this guy before, Jimmy Carter? Okay, some of you remember him from time gone by. He claimed when he became president, he claimed that he was born again. Okay, I'm not questioning his faith beyond that. I know that he was a member of Plains Baptist Church. And he's an active member, has been for years there down in Georgia. And he was a deacon in the church. And in his autobiography, he talks about how he was so proud of his evangelistic efforts. That there in Plains, while he was serving there in that church before, before he was governor, and then while he was governor of Georgia, and then he went back after he was president for that one term. Uh, he talks about how he was involved, that they would have revival meetings every year. And the deacons had agreed that they would go and visit homes in the community to invite people 
people. So every one of the deacons would go and visit a few homes, invite those people to come. And he talks about how he had visited a few homes, read the scriptures, have prayer, share some religious beliefs, talk about the weather and the crops. And he says, I was always proud enough of this effort to retain a clear conscience throughout the remainder of the year that I had gone and done my duty of evangelism by visiting a few homes. And he said, so he was invited to go and preach at or speak at a church conference where there was multiple churches, and they asked him to speak on the area of evangelistic outreach. And so they thought it would be really good that the former president would, would even talk about how we need to get out the Word of God. So he said, I was preparing, and this is in his biography, autobiography. He says, I was preparing, and I was going to wow the people with my personal experience of, as a deacon, going out and inviting people to our revival meetings every year. And he said, so I put it together, all the statistics, that over a 10-year period of time, I visited 144, 145 homes. And he said, I was so proud of that, and I'm headed for this convention, have my notes, have my speech all prepared, thinking about 144, 145 homes that I visited over 10 years, surely they're going to be impressed. And he says, I get there, and somebody made a comment to me. They just said, hey, just out of fun, how many homes, how many people did you visit when you were running for governor? We were just, and they just brought up out of the clear blue. And it struck him like a load of bricks. That when he was running for governor, he visited hundreds and thousands for the cause of getting elected. And then when he became president, the number of people that he entered, he went and tried to schmooze just ran into the tens of thousands. And his comment is, but for the Lord, I thought 144 or 145 was really great. How shamed I was. You and I, we can do a whole lot more for the Lord. And this passage says, okay, this is what we need to do. We ought not to sit by. We ought to get involved. We ought to contribute. Something else that this passage does, it tells us praising God is really important. Giving God praise, giving God glory, giving God worship, giving God the idea of singing to him. We have an opportunity to do praise here in the next few minutes. It's all about communion, fellowship, praising, and giving him worship. Let's start it.